Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the Definitive Rap Podcast. We thank Vin News for hosting our shows. They say if you want to test a friendship, raise two issues and see what happens. Sit <laughs> around the table and ask them what they think about the Second Amendment or abortion. And if no one heads explodes, you might have a chance. Today's guest is a great friend of the show, Professor Thane Rosenbaum, the brilliant columnist, essayist, and analyst, just to name a few of his many talents, uh, from CBS News Radio Legal Analyst, whom Bela will give a more proper introduction to shortly. Last week, the Supreme Court heard the Mississippi case of Dobbs versus Jackson, where the state is looking to restrict abortion after 15 weeks. Will their decision overturn Roe v. Wade? Two weeks ago, Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty in a court of law, but was found extremely guilty by the media and left-wing mobs who, while decrying so-called vigilante justice, were demanding social justice, which doesn't require a trial. Their only criteria is race and if a firearm was used. In Atlanta, three white men were found guilty of murdering a black man named Ahmed Arbery uh, on last uh, February 23rd of 2020. Following the verdict, Al Sharpton declared that not all whites are racist. The newest high-profile case, sure to dominate the cable news networks, is that of Ghislaine Maxwell, the girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein, who isn't alive to face justice, so can we expect the prosecutors to make her guilty of his crimes as well? Today, we will have a conversation about whether our justice system is still based on what our founding fathers had hoped for, or do we have a new system which takes into account factors not related to the evidence? Bela? Thank you, Alan. We are living in a time zone where political correctness is no longer relevant and where we are calling a spade a spade, regardless if even the spade is actually a spade. That's just the way it is today. And that would be okay if, in fact, our justice system is still based on what Alan just alluded to, what our founding fathers hoped for. The fact is, our founding fathers had not hoped for school shootings to happen and run rampantly in our American schools. Innocent children going to school and being shot by lunatics. That's not what our founding fathers had in mind. The recent Christmas parade massacre in Waukesha, Wisconsin, that killed six people and wounded dozens more when Daryl Brooks decided to plow his red SUV into a crowd of 60 people? No, that's not what our founding fathers had in mind. When the law fails to punish wrongdoers, as in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, where Kyle killed two men and severely wounded another in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the jury not only found that he acted in self-defense, but they acquitted him of all five charges. This individual became a symbol of vigilante justice. Is this what our founding fathers had in mind? In what universe? No, that's not what our founding fathers had in mind. 
we'll, we will be talking more about these and other political correct issues with law professor and distinguished university professor at Turo College, Thane Rosenbaum, who writes widely on Jewish-related themes. Thane Rosenbaum is not just a law professor. He's a legal and Middle East analyst, novelist, essayist, and distinguished university professor at Turo College, where he directs the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society. He is the author of numerous books of fiction and nonfiction, including Saving Free Speech from Itself, Payback, The Case for Revenge, and The Myth of Moral Justice, Why Our Legal System Fails to Do What's Right. He edited the anthology Law Literature Lit from Atticus Finch to the Practice, a collection of great writing about the law. His novels include How Sweet It Is, The Golems of Gotham, Secondhand Smoke, and Elijah Visible, among others. He has a twice-monthly column with the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles, a once-monthly essay for the White Rose Magazine, and has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, and the Daily Beast, among other publications. He is the legal analyst for CBS News Radio and is a contributor to Newsmax TV. He hosts a talk show at the 92nd Street Y. Professor Rosenbaum, welcome to our show. Mm-hmm. It Thank is you, always a tremendous honor to have you with us. You're both so kind, and this is an important podcast, so I always make time for it. Oh, I'm going to open my first question with one of the recent controversies, <clears throat> the hotly debated topic of abortion. <clears throat> Lawsuits challenging abortion <clears throat> rights are consistently brought into federal court like clockwork. But since Roe versus Wade, the most newsworthy case involving abortion is the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. Why is this case before the Supreme Court any different? <clears throat> well, thank you, Bela, and thank you, Alan, <clears throat> and welcome to the Definitive Rap audience. Um, well, this case is very different from earlier challenges to Roe v. Wade because the earlier cases didn't seek to overturn Roe v. Wade. What, the, what they tried to do in almost every instance was restrict the access to abortion. They didn't really try to say there's no right to an abortion, nor did they even touch the viability standard at 24 weeks. They were mostly, they were primarily interested in access, which was a way that social conservatives believed they could chip away at abortion by simply making it harder to have an abortion. So the case Planned Parenthood versus Casey says <clears throat> Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and states can have some restrictions as long as they don't impose an undue burden on women, right? And that's how the law has been since both Roe v. Wade and the Casey case. <clears throat> but cases like, for instance, with Louisiana and Texas, where they used to say, unless you're a doctor with visiting privileges at a local hospital, you're not permitted to do an abortion. That's a perfect example of restricting access to abortion, not attacking abortion, but making it harder to get one. The Mississippi case is a direct strike at Roe v. Wade. It basically seeks to undo it. And in fact, if you read the briefs of the Mississippi attorney general, he, or I think it's she, says there's no constitutional right to an abortion. Where does this come from? Where You guys are just making this stuff up. Now, at first, that's not what Mississippi did. First, at first, they said, no, 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 no. You can certainly keep Roe v. Wade intact. All we're really saying is move the line, move the goalpost from viability at 24 weeks 
move it down to 15. And Mississippi has a right to ban abortions after 15. That's all we're doing. We're knocking out seven weeks. That's it. Relax. But since then, with the three new Trump justices, Mississippi has gotten a little more uh, emboldened and is, no, 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 no. Actually, let me tell you what we're really interested in. We're really interested in overturning Roe v. Wade. And so it was interesting that that didn't come up as much as I thought in the in the oral argument last week, that they changed their mind. So that's what's really very different about this. Uh, it's it does two things. It in some ways, in many ways, seeks to overturn Roe v. Wade. And it secondly is saying, what's the difference between 24 weeks and and, and, and 15 weeks? Why can't we just keep the standard lower? Doesn't Mississippi, if Mississippi has a right, a compelling interest to deal with unborn children, uh, why can't it be from 15 weeks instead of 24? That's what makes Mississippi different. So, Professor, I have a multi-part question here. Um, I listened to most of it, and um, I heard Justice Sotomayor kind of go beyond legal and kind of bring up you know, her own feelings when she made the comparison between an, a fetus and somebody who is like basically in a vegetative state. She said, well, if you, you know, someone who's in a vegetative state, if you touch their feet, uh, their feet could curl up. So touching a baby's foot to make them re- react doesn't prove that it's any more viable. And I'm wondering, did you think that that was kind of stepping beyond the legalities and invoking her own, her own interest in this issue? And did you find any of the, any of the other questions from any of the other justices to be more advocacy than talking about the law itself? Well, Alan, the, the other part, part that she made, point that she made at a different point, I think even reinforces your point more, where she talked about the stench. Right. She used the word stench if we were to uphold Mississippi law, because what she's saying is the only reason to uphold Mississippi law is political. It's not constitutional. We would only be doing it because there are now three conservative justices appointed by uh, Donald Trump. They are now joined by even more conservative justices in Thomas and in some sense in, in Alito as well. And we have now a six majority. We only need five, even if Roberts pulls away and votes with the liberals. So really, this is a political decision and it's not based on the Constitution because she's essentially saying if it was based on the Constitution, we would never allow this Mississippi case because it essentially is overturning Roe v. Wade. So she's making the same argument in the point that you made a little differently, where she's saying, you know, there's a big difference between the viability of children and of unborn children and the viability of someone in a vegetative state. But in some ways that that again, that argument goes really to this issue of viability where you draw the line. For instance, the Texas case that receives a lot of uh, attention over the summer, which is also on its way to the Supreme Court, which they'll have to address, is a much scarier idea if you're, if you're a pro-abortion advocate. Uh, because what they're saying is, and a lot of states have what's now called fetal heartbeat laws, which said, if you can hear and detect a heartbeat, you can't do an abortion because the heartbeat shows that there's life inside the womb. Now, no one is saying that a baby can exist outside the womb after six weeks, which is normally the fetal heartbeat date. Right. No one's saying that. So no one is even making a viability argument. They're just simply saying, if you can hear a fetal heartbeat, that is a human being and we can't 
kill that human being. Now, many states have the laws. They're just been, they have essentially been injunctions have been placed on all of them. They haven't been necessarily invalidated with injunctions because the lower courts have essentially sought to invalidate the cases or at least enjoined this law because it so clearly violates Roe v. Wade. Right. So because that one isn't even doesn't even deal with viability. No one is saying a child at six weeks is viable. So that's a whole nother standard. That's what pro abortion advocates, activists are saying that Mississippi, by chopping the viability from 24 to 15, is now going to open the door to all of those states. And there are many that have fetal heartbeat laws that have been sort of on ice frozen because everyone knows it's it's unconstitutional. But if Mississippi is overturning essentially Roe v. Wade, what's to stop these other states to implement their fetal viability laws, their fetal heartbeat laws? Sorry. Uh, Professor, I'm going to touch upon another controversial political correctness topic where you stated Anthony Fauci is not Joseph Mengele in response to Lara Logan, the broadcast journalist who recently compared Dr. Anthony Fauci to Dr. Joseph Mengele, the angel of death in Auschwitz, who conducted horrors of experiments on women and children, specifically twins. In fact, I I know elderly people today who were twins at that particular time, Hmm. um, and one of them did not survive. Um, You also stated that not only is Fauci not Mengele, but former President Trump is not Hitler. What's with all this blood libel? Well, I mean, this was started, we heard this a lot throughout the Trump administration, and I I responded to it several times. Uh, You know, I I didn't vote for Donald Trump twice, but I'm a child of Holocaust survivors, and I know who Hitler is and who Trump is. And it trivializes the crimes of the Nazis to call Donald Trump. Donald Trump may be many things that you don't like. That's fine. But don't trivialize the mass murder of Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and political prisoners and 35 million Russians. This is absurd, right? These are not, there's no death camps. There's no gassing of people. You don't like the man? Fine. Don't vote for the man. Uh, you know, I know that But the, the, the reaction of the passion that this man inflamed oftentimes led to this sort of hyperbole. And hyperbole is dangerous. Words matter. They matter. And if you if you trivialize things, then they don't mean anything anymore. They don't have the power. I want Auschwitz to have meaning. I want train tracks and numbered arms and barbed wire to mean one thing and one thing only. I want Hitler to mean one thing only. And this completely distorts, confuses and minimizes, diminishes the crimes of Hitler to compare him to a president that you don't like. Okay, I get it. Now, Mengele, as you pointed out, you have a friend whose sister didn't survive. You're talking about a man who was called the angel of death. It was his job. He was in charge of to the left, to the right. He was the one that decided when they did selections, who got selected for kill at death and who got to live another day. Is that really what... Tony Anthony Fauci is look I think his 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 uh, his failure to properly disclose uh, the relationship between the NIH and the Wuhan lab was wrong wrong on many levels should he have been fired I, I I don't know I have no real strong feeling about that I know one thing he's an infectious disease expert that is trying to stop the spread of the coronavirus 
I don't think he's firing up gas chambers. I don't think he's conducting experiment on twins. It's absurd to make this connection. But Lara Logan, we're living in an age of hyperbole and words don't matter. And we we slander and libel each other in horrific ways. And what people don't realize is the consequences of that. Right. I've said this before. If everyone is a racist, then no one is a racist. That's something that people who care about racism should think about. You should just shut up. Stop accusing everyone of a racist, because what you've done is you've made it me meaningless. If you're making me if you're putting me in the category of the clan, it might make you feel good, but you're making a huge mistake. I am not the clan. You should really be worried about the clan. But since you've decided to charge everyone with racism, well, then all bets are off. Everyone's a racist and no one really should care about being anti-racist. It's all futile. If you're white, you're a racist. So again, we were living in a terrible era in which language is totally trivialized. And we toss out these accusations very casually without regard to the consequences of what they mean. And again, if I was Mengele's family, I would love the thought that Fauci, such a decorated, distinguished doctor, and my great-great-grandfather, wow, that's awesome. He's the same, right? It's like, this guy's trying to save lives, you see? My grandfather, great great was trying to save lives, don't you see? Right? And, and, that, and this is not, and I know you're both smiling, yes, but it's yeah. true. Yeah, no, it's, for sure. It, you know, yeah. It's true. I know you're smiling because you recognize that ex- no, exactly. Yeah. It's exactly what Mangala's relatives sh- should say. <laughs> That's exactly what pro-Hitler people should say. You know, Hitler was, you know, Trump wasn't all that bad. If he's Hitler, then Trump, then Hitler wasn't Hitler. <laughs> So, yeah, I, that, that's that's what I wrote about this week in the Jewish Journal. It just got posted today. Right. So, in fact, the title of that article is called The Dangerous Banality of Outrage. I posted on Facebook uh, this morning myself, and it's a it's a fantastic article, as are all of your columns. Um, I want to go back to the um, the Mississippi case because I heard um, it was Amy, uh, Amy Coney, Coney Barrett talk about the prospect of adoption. And what that brought back to mind was, I remember when George W. Bush was president, and he said that rather than change laws, and I feel the same way, I'm a conservative, I'm pro-life, um, but more along the lines of the Torah you know, view of abortion as opposed to the church's view. But I still consider myself to be pro-life um, you know, in, that, in that vein. Um, and his position was, if you change people's minds and people's hearts, you will reduce abortions. Because adoption is a very viable way to, you know, undo the burden that the advocate for uh, Planned Parenthood and uh, for Jackson was espousing, you know, in in, uh, the trial last week. And my warning to Republicans, for all it's worth, is be careful what you wish for. Uh, If you want to mobilize people, try to overturn Roe v. Wade. The problem is not whether it's legal or not. It's that people are getting abortions because they see it. Uh, as a form of birth control, or they see it being trivialized as no different than removing an organ. And I think that this is something that, again, it's, it's rarely brought up. I'd rather abortion be completely legal and few if ever performed. As Hillary Clinton once said years ago, safe, legal, and rare is better than outlawing abortion than having everyone go and trying to get one. My two cents. It's well said, Alan. Let me just add a little something to what you're the, the, the comment you made about Amy Coney Barrett. 
so that your audience knows what she was trying to say there, mm-hmm. which was that in 1973, and then again, when Casey was decided, I think in 1992, the issue was about the right to privacy of women and the lives that they are entitled to have, right? And that to impose uh, absolute motherhood, that, that, that they are essentially imprisoned by children they don't want to have, and then they can't pursue a career. Now, remember, 1973 is the very early days of the feminist movement. Try to understand where the country was. The country was shifting directions in terms of, remember, there was an, there was an equal rights amendment for women, right? There was this attempt. So Roe v. Wade falls in a basket of how do we more emancipate women and, and free them so that they can pursue the lives that they wish and the careers that they wish. So I think what Amy Coney Barrett's saying, we're not in 1973 or 1992, we're in 2021. And today where there's things called childcare. And today there's people that go to work, even though they have children at home and they're, they're partners at major law firms. That's the point that she's making. A mother can actually be head of surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital and have three kids that are in elementary school. That was not considered in 1973. And what she's also saying is if you can, if you can adopt the child, then the child, you know, then the, what, what, what she's really made this argument, which is what social conservatives is, we're, we're favoring mothers, the lives of women, the fullness of their reproductive freedom over the lives of unborn children. And we've really disposed of them as being incidental to this question. And some people are saying, no, 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 they're not incidental to this question. There are things you could do with a living child that wouldn't necessarily destroy your life. And I think that was the point she's made. Professor, I would like to talk about the parents of alleged shooter in a Michigan high school um, who were charged with involuntary manslaughter. It has never before happened after a mass shooting committed by a minor that the parents were criminally charged. Why in this case? It's a good point, uh, Bela. It's there's only been four cases in which parents were uh, criminally punished uh, for their children shooting a gun that either killed themselves, right? A child accidentally shoots himself or shoots another child. There's only four times that that's happened. But as you say, never before in a mass shooting. Um, Look, I mean, the prosecuting attorney in, in, in her press conference when she was essentially setting forth the charges was also, to her credit, speaking as a mother, not just as a prosecutor. And one of the things I think she was saying was the conduct, the neglect of these parents. Remember, the involuntary manslaughter is a negligence standard. It's not a premeditated, deliberative murder standard, right? right? It's based on the idea of gross negligence. And so the question that a jury needs to ask is, what would a reasonable would a reasonable parent in that part of the country uh, buy a gun on Black Friday, not keep it locked, even though there was no law in Michigan that requires that they be locked? Uh, there's no per- child prevention access statute either. But would a responsible parent let the gun where they don't know where the gun is? Right. Uh, there are some states that have requirements that the guns be separated from the ammunition. Right. That they can't even be in the same room. You have to separate them. Michigan doesn't have that law. But the question is, when they were called into the school, would a reasonable parent not have said at that point, you know what, this picture that he drew is very disturbing because, you know what, we just bought him a gun last week. And by the way, 
son, where is that gun? And let me see your backpack. Because had they taken those steps, which many people would say is just basic parenting, this murder, these mass murder could have been avoided. So I think it's their complicity and their negligence in this that made it different. Remember, the Columbine parents didn't get right. That seemed... But if anything, what got attention, which I, I think still gets attention, should receive attention, is that th- those children were terribly bullied by other classmates and the mm-hmm. teachers didn't intervene. Right. right. No one really wanted to talk about but that, that. That's still an issue. But the issue was not should we necessarily. I mean, it didn't. There were civil suits against some of the parents, but that's different from criminal action. And that's what makes this different. Parents, in all those other cases, could always sue, and they did. In Parkland, they did under first under civil liability. But our local district attorneys prepared to bring criminal charges against neglect negligent parents. Well, this is the first time, and I think it puts it put parents on notice. Be very careful if you buy a gun, because if the child is committed, it's not just civil liability. You go to jail. So as you said, it's putting parents on notice throughout the country. Remember, this country, and let me just quickly add one thing that's very important. We're an outlier nation in a lot of ways with respect to Western constitutional values. For instance, I wrote a book recently, uh, as you pointed out, on the First Amendment, Saving Free Speech from Itself, um, in which I point out how free speech is very different here from other Western democracies. But one of the things that's all common about the difference is we are obsessed with personal autonomy, the autonomy of the self. That is a very American idea. The rest of Europe doesn't focus on this. We do. They focus on other things like human dignity, but we focus on individual rights. Don't tread on me. So all of these things are related to each other, right? Don't tread on me. And so what is, how does that work here? Our legal system generally only punishes the person who commits the overt act that results in the crime. Who shot the gun? We don't have duty to rescue in the United States. In Under Jewish law, Maimonides is very clear. Jews have a duty under Talmudic law to rescue other people. Yep. In the United States, you could a person could be drowning in a lake and you could be standing right there with the life preserver on by your feet and they're screaming out, help, help, throw the life preserver. You don't have any obligation to pick it up and throw it to them. There is absolutely no obligation in this country. Because, now in Europe, forget it. You go to jail. You know, what do you mean you didn't pick up the life preserver? And so I've even written about this in other ways. This happened with Joe Paterno at Penn State. It was very confusing for people. He was the coach, but he didn't rape anybody. His assistant coached it. Did he know? Did he not know? He was and ultimately held accountable in the court of public opinion and was fired from his job where he was once an iconic football coach. But I wrote about that, I remember, for the Daily Beast, because I think it was very confusing to people because they didn't understand as a general rule, you have no obligation to abate a danger that you don't cause. If you're firing the gun, it's your responsibility. If you're standing around watching, not really. And in this instance, generally speaking, if you're the parent, unless you fired the gun, you're not you, you're not, you took no overt act that caused the murder even though you could argue, well, the overt act was to buy the gun. Not really, because you're allowed to buy a gun in Michigan. What do you mean? I'm allowed to buy a gun. By the way, in Michigan, you're allowed to not only buy a gun, you're allowed to buy a gun for a kid who can fire the gun legally at a shooting range 
with your supervision, right? They didn't violate any of those laws. The only problem was the supervision part. Right. And that's what made this very different. Yeah. Professor, I want to ask you about, again, going back to Kyle Rittenhouse and uh, also Soros funded DAs. Um, when I watched part of the Rittenhouse uh, trial on Fox, uh, they had Andrew McCarthy and Jonathan Turley as their legal analysts. And they both said that whether he should have been there or not is irrelevant. This was self-defense. If you watch the other networks, and I only saw the montage played by Fox, they were basically, um, you know, he was guilty, white boy, what's he doing there with a gun, blah, blah, blah. Um, in Chicago, you have Kim Fox, who didn't want to charge Jesse Smollett. In California, you've got George Gascon, who said, arresting people is traumatic and dehumanizing. And then in Wisconsin, you had John Chisholm, uh, who said, is there going to be an individual I divert or I put into the treatment program who's going to go out and kill somebody? You bet. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed to happen. Um, where do you see this country going? I mean, you know, Gascon, there was a recall that failed. They couldn't get enough signatures. And what scares the heck out of me is just our system of justice is going into the toilet because we're letting the media um, drive the narrative. Who's guilty before there's a hearing? You saw all the demonstrators outside um, the courthouse with Rittenhouse. You had students at University of Arizona or Arizona State saying, you know, he shouldn't be allowed to come here. Um, this is a very, very dangerous precedent. And I don't even know if it's a precedent anymore. Uh, which precedent are we talking about? The Rittenhouse precedent? Or? Well, the, the idea of the media is driving. Oh, OK. Yeah. You know, you know how people well, should be uh, you know, tried and, and heard and found guilty or not guilty. Yeah. All right. Well, that's related. All of that, Alan, is related to Bela's earlier point about the cancellation culture. It's connected. Let me show you how. <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily seem like it, but it's connected. <clears throat> the cancellation culture and critical race theory are focused really on one word that definitive rap audience members should be thinking about. It's the key word. It's called equity. You don't hear it as much, spoken as much, but it comes up in the language of critical race theory speakers. And what does equity mean? Equity means disparate impact. Why is it that our jails are filled with more African-Americans disproportionate to white people? It can only be one reason, racism. It's not about that they come from high crime neighborhoods. It has nothing to do with predisposition to crime. It has nothing to do with economic matters. It happens to do with racism. We're picking up more African-Americans and putting them in jail. And one of the reasons we have the bail reform laws and the prison reform laws that we're seeing recently and are acted upon by these you know, progressive district attorneys is because they're taking an equity position. They're saying there's a disparate impact against people of color, and therefore it's a racist position. So we have to empty the jails of African-Americans. I know this sounds insane, but if you ask them in a private moment, they would say, and we should throw some Jews and Asians in jail. Why? To make it equitable. <laughs> what is the percentage of Jews in the country? 3%. 3% of the population that are Jews should throw them in jail to let them reflect the population. Now, this is insane, right? But our country is operating on insanity, that everything is based on an equity formula. The reason we're destroying uh, magnet schools or high achievement high schools where my children went, we're getting rid of them. Why? Because most of the kids in there are Asian. Well, obviously, if they're not enough African-Americans, it's only one reason. It's not because African-Americans can't pass the test. It's because it's racist. 
right? And so you're seeing wonderful schools like in New York that are under attack because three quarters of the school is made of Asians. Asians have actually sued Harvard on this, saying that if you're basing it based on on, on, on test scores, right, the focus is on diversity. And by the way, Harvard, I think, is correct. Diversity matters. It does, you know, you don't want a a school to be 75% of one person. And I think Harvard's concept of trying to create a diverse student body is, is, is emblematic of the right standard. But what we're talking about here is doing away with prisons, doing away with the police, doing away with high achieving schools, right? And that, what's the basis? What's the reason, the justification? Equity. It's to do equity. It's not about what Martin Luther King said. Equity, in his view, was, as as most liberals of that age, was providing opportunity for minorities and people of color to achieve at the highest level. Opportunity is what they didn't receive and give them every opportunity, give them every remedial opportunity to catch up, right? Speaking of Sonia Sotomayor, if you read her memoir, it's an excellent memoir, uh, she talks about how she came from a uh, housing project in the Bronx and was a Jewish high school and teacher, a Jewish teacher, woman in high school who that tutored her. her. She just wasn't she didn't have her English wasn't strong enough. And it, it, by the way, it's very interesting for your Jewish audience. If you read the memoir of Sonia, Mayer, most, Sonia Sotomayor, Jews throughout her career pushed, helped her to get to the next level. She had a, a doctor in the Bronx that didn't charge her. She was a diabetic as a child. This high school teacher got her to help her get into Princeton. There was a Jewish professor in Princeton that helped her catch up because she wasn't caught up to the prep school kids. That was what we understood affirmative action to mean. Do everything possible to make Sonia Sotomayor, Sotomayor and she's now, she's incredible, but it took, she had to catch up. That's not what today's equity people are talking about. They're talking about simply get rid of it. If mathematics is is the reason why we used to say we need to get African-Americans, people of color, minorities, more STEM courses so they can achieve in the sciences. Now we don't want to do that anymore. Now we want to do is just get rid of mathematics. Why? Because mathematics is racist. What? You heard me. We are now being told that mathematics is racist. Why is it racist? Because it's favoring white children over people of color. It's like, well, that's not racism. <laughs> that's, and the answer is, yes, that is. So as I said, these all, I gave you a way to connect all those dots. They're all the same. What ties them together, poli- defunding the police, bail reform, prisons, uh, standardized, standardized tests, high achieving school, math, all one thing, disparate impact. It's having a disparate impact that African-Americans are not at the same level and that for you can only identify one reason for racism. And if it's racism, we have to stamp it out because our country is really sensitive to racism because, you know, in, 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 what is it? 1639 or whatever, 40, whatever the, 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 the New York times project is 1619, whatever, 1619 there. Thank you for that. I think you're right. It is 1619. From 1619, this country has been nothing but a racist enterprise. And so these are examples. This is all evidence of racism. And that's that I hope that's clarifies for your audience in a few minutes 
what's really what's going on. So you can explain this the next time you're at dinner and say, you know, there I heard this guy seems like a lunatic to me, but this is what he said. We we have so much more to talk about, but we only have time for one more quick question. And I know it's not going to be quick, but uh, Professor, you recently published an article in the White Rose titled The Liberals Guide to COVID-19 Madness. This article deals specifically with people um, who are psychologically affected by this virus. In fact, you state in that article that this leaked virus from China took a surprising detour to the human brain and brought about collective insanity. Can you can we talk a little bit about that and, and what you're referring to? Well, I, I'm not I'm not ideological on that. I'm saying the left and the right, right, both sides have walked away from a flu, you know, a, de- a more deadly flu, albeit, but a flu that has resulted in many deaths. And it, it, it does seem to have affected, you know, not literally affected the mind, but it has because it's created a lot more hostility toward each other, a lot more cynicism towards science, towards government, uh, towards mandates, right? Look at all the ways in which we're fighting over things related to COVID, right? Opinions about vaccines, about masks, about six feet distances, about sheltering at home, about homeschooling, right? I mean, this thing is not, has gone way beyond a virus and has changed the political culture of the United States and has even pitted friends and neighbors and family members against each other. I have relatives that are, are unvaccinated. They think I'm going to die from the fact that I have all of them in the booster. I understand. That's what they think. I'm just saying that that I wouldn't have expected that. We didn't see this with the polio vaccine. We didn't see this with the smallpox vaccine. I understand there's a difference. What's really the difference? The difference is with polio, it literally got rid of polio, right? That's my understanding. I'm not a scientist. That's smallpox. This doesn't really, these vaccines are not really vaccines in that way. Remember, these vaccines only make it so that you don't die in a hospital, Right. But you can still get it, which is why when President Biden says you got to get the vaccine and that'll it's like, well, he's confusing people because it doesn't stop anything. You can still carry it. You can still have it. But the odds of you being on a ventilator in a hospital have been diminished severely. So but it does seem like this this virus has taken on another life of its own. And has affected the way we are towards each other. It's transcended science and has been part of our political culture. Professor, thank you for joining us on the Definitive Wrap. Anytime. It's been, it's been amazing as always. Thank, uh, you, thank you to com for hosting our show. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.